This is the She Dares to Travel podcast, and I am your host, Raquel Pollock. After spending a decade managing the number one travel agency in Canada, I am now here to connect you to women that are taking the travel industry by storm, as well as female business professionals that also have a passion for travel, just like me. We are here to inspire, uplift, and motivate you to not only follow, but plan out your dreams, no matter where in the world they may be. And of course, this wouldn't be possible without our sponsor, Staples Studio, where I am currently recording from. Check them out on their website, studio.staples.ca. It truly is a new approach to co-working with community at its heart. There's access to hot desks, meeting and event spaces all across North America. So thank you, Staples Studio, for connecting us and sponsoring this podcast. And thank you for listening. Enjoy, be sure to subscribe and follow along. Hello, all you daredevils out there. It is me, Raquela. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the She Dares to Travel podcast. Today's guest is no stranger to adventure. Alice Morrison has been described as the Indiana Jones for girls. It's quite the title to be living up to, but her stories truly speak for themselves. And I feel that that title is very well deserved. And I would love to know what you think too. Alice has been accustomed to travel since a very young age, and she joins us today from where she lives in the foothills of the beautiful Atlas Mountains in Morocco. She's worked her way up the corporate ladder over the years and now has gone from TV presenter and CEO to full-time adventurer and writer, while also sharing her stories on her podcast, Alice in Wonderland. Alice, thank you so much for chatting with us today. That's my pleasure. So how are things going in the beautiful Atlas Mountains? They're good. We're just coming into winter now. So we had our first real snow this week, which is great because Morocco's been suffering from a drought. So we are desperate for good rainfall and good snowfall. So I'm looking out on two peaks of about up to 4,167 metres high, Ooh. covered in snow, but over a sea of walnut trees. Oh, stunning. Absolutely stunning. And you've been living there for quite a while now. I have. I moved to um, the place where I live now, a place called Imlil in the Atlas Mountains, about an hour and a half drive from Marrakesh, two years ago, about two and a half years ago. And I came, no, two years ago, November, I came to um, train for the Everest Trail Race. So I moved to Morocco to train for another race, to train for the Marathon des Sables, which I ran in 2014. And then I was living by the coast and I signed up to run around Everest. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Of course, you can't train at sea level. You're running at high altitude. So I moved up to this village to to get my lungs in order and get my legs in order. And um, I've stayed. Wow. That is incredible. It is such a beautiful place up in that area. And just the mountains are so stunning. With your travels, you know, I read a bit um, about your story. And you really have been traveling since a very young age. Well, I've been traveling since a very, very young age because <laughs> I actually started traveling when I was six weeks old. So my story is that my parents were of that generation of Scots. I was born in 1963 and my mom did her, now let me get this right, she had me on the 25th of May. She did her law finals on the 6th of June, wow. two weeks later and passed. Uh, and then six weeks after that, we were on a boat headed for Africa because my parents had gone to their university and seen what jobs there were advertised, fancied Uganda, mm -hmm. and um, signed up to be teachers, English teachers there. So off we set. My mom had never left Scotland before, but off we set on the boat and my adventure started. Wow. That is so, it's almost unbelievable in a way that they wanted to adventure so quickly when you were such a babe, <laughs> like going out. Well, to be honest, I think, I think A, the Scots, I mean, you know, the, 
it, it's dangerous to stereotype people with nationality, but the Scots, at any one time, 25% of Scots are abroad, are living abroad. So I think we are a very traveling minded nation. And my parents, just like all of us, were, were children of their age. So at that time, you know, people traveled a lot. They didn't, you didn't have the same kind of extreme concerns for that people have now. You know, a lot, there's an awful lot of babies in Africa. So my parents didn't see any reason why they wouldn't take their baby to Africa. I think it was it was a more robust age, let's say. Absolutely. Very, <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah very practical <laughs> approach, right? Very, very practical. That is so incredible. So how long were you living and growing up in Africa? Well, we lived in Uganda till I was eight. And then we came back briefly to Scotland. And then we moved back to Africa again. And I was there till I went to boarding school when I was 11. Dude, was there um, other languages that you learned to speak while there, growing up there? Well, growing up, I was fluent in Swahili, which was okay. then the national language of Uganda, because like so many African countries, there are lots of tribal languages, quite small tribal languages. And Swahili was kind of the, the national language. But interestingly, two things. One, unfortunately, I forgot it when I came back to Scotland, because then we went back to Ghana and it wasn't spoken there. So unfortunately, I've forgotten all of it. But secondly, after we left, Idi Amin came into power and there was a lot of civil war, very evil civil wars that then he was beaten. The next president killed so many people that the Nile clogged up with bodies. And as a result of this terrible time that Uganda went through, they've actually, uh, Swahili is no longer the national language because it was seen as the language of this terrible dictator, Idi Amin. So English is now the national language of Uganda. Very, very interesting. What a very unique story. Because I don't really know anybody or any any of my friends over here, none of them um, have quite uh, an upbringing in, in another country like that. So it's a very unique oh. way to kind of get thrown right into travel from a very young age. Definitely. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so then after, um, you know, boarding school you went to, did you go to university at all after that? I did. I went I went for a, I had a gap year and I went to work in Dubai and I worked on a magazine called What's On in Dubai. So that was great for me because... I lived with my parents for a year. I was only 17. You know, my first job in journalism. Uh, and I was a, obviously did, I was kind of the, the assistant. So I did absolutely everything and learned everything and started my first writing there, doing things like reports about the Dubai Rugby Club. I know very little about rugby <laughs> and doing travel features about places which I'm ashamed to admit that I'd never <laughs> been to. Um, but yeah, it was a fantastic foundation. But then, and then my boss wanted me to stay on with him. And since he's now a multimillionaire, perhaps I should have. <laughs> but um, I wanted to go to university. So I went back to Scotland again to Edinburgh for study Arabic and Turkish as my next stage. Wow. What was your draw to learn Arabic and Turkish? My parents advised me strongly to do something unusual and we were living in the Middle East. So it seemed like a natural choice of language. Yeah, very much so. And that language is very, uh, I, I can imagine it's a very hard language to learn. I know a little bit of Italian. That's about the extent of my my other languages that I can speak. But I know with Arabic, it's very, it's very much in your throat, right? Like very, um, is that is that how you can describe it? Very throaty, like very. Um, well, I, I think it depends. Obviously, yeah, yeah it is a hard language to learn mm. because it's it's very far from you know. If you speak English, then you're going to find lots of words in French and Italian and Spanish that you recognize. Yeah. Likewise, in German, you, you won't be amazed at the grammar and the kind of rhythm of German. But Arabic is unlike all of those. But it is a very, very beautiful language, and it's a very poetic language. And it's also a fantastically widespread language because they speak Arabic from you know the whole of North Africa, 
right across the Levant, Syria, Iraq, right through to the Arabian Peninsula. And Arabic, of course, is the language of the Quran, and there mm. are 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide. So I think having learned something like Arabic, it, it helped me in a lot of ways. One, you, you stop being scared of languages because you make so many mistakes <laughs> that after that, it's like, it's like I now speak French with aplomb, even though, because I don't care if I make mistakes. I just want to communicate. Exactly. And I think Arabic gave me that as well as the language itself, which is a very, very beautiful language. And if you mm-hmm. listen to the Quran being recited, for example, it, it, it's music. So, you know, a lot of people say it's throaty or guttural. I really would disagree with that. I think mm-hmm. it's, it depends. But also there is so, we say Arabic, but the Arabic in Morocco is not understandable to an Egyptian. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. So, I mean, yeah. really, Arabic is almost like Latin and, say, Egyptian Arabic and Moroccan Arabic would be like Spanish and French. Okay. Almost. Yeah. Not Perhaps not quite as much as that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, uh, classical Arabic is, is very much a kind of a umbrella language. Wow. So you're pretty, you're fluent <laughs> then, I would say, in these languages now after studying them. I think what, what's in. really cool mm-hmm. for me is when I, like, the other day I was at the supermarket just getting some veg at the veg, mm-hmm. at the veg counter. And I, I had like piles and piles of veg. And, and what happens in Morocco, you take your veg up to the counter and they weigh it and they put a sticker on it. So I was, I had these piles, I'd unloaded my trolley and a poor bloke comes up behind me. He's got like one banana. So I just said in Arabic, oh, just go ahead. You know, no problem. Mm-hmm. And he went, oh, I didn't realize you're a Moroccan. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> yes. I did it. That's fantastic. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I get away with it. More, more often, to be honest, people in Morocco think I'm Egyptian or Tunisian. Oh, and people yeah. in Egypt would think I was Tunisian or Syrian. So they're like, you speak Arabic, so you must be an Arab of mm-hmm. some ilk, but you're not from here. So I'm always a foreigner. <laughs> yeah, always a foreigner. Oh, I love languages. That's one thing I think is so important when going and traveling to any country, even if you learn one phrase or a couple, just to speak. And uh, my favorite story is that we were in Sri Lanka, my husband and I, and yeah. we, were, um, we were up in this tiny little town. We just needed to get some water. So we went in to get some water. And um, I said, thank you very much in Sri Lankan. And this little girl mm-hmm. was ringing me in. And she stopped and stared. And she said, wow, you're very welcome in English. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, oh. And then I guess uh, we had a, a driver with us. And he said, oh, she said to her mom after mom, she spoke Sri Lankan. Wow, that was so cool. <laughs> so it was really neat. <laughs> but it's That's true. That's very nice. It's so important. It really is. So you've now gone gone through university, you've taken your uh, Turkish Arabic. Where <laughs> where did you end up after that? Well, I, I wanted to, I mean, having learned, if you like, classical Arabic, Latin, I wanted to learn some real Arabic. So I'd already spent six months in Syria, in Damascus. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I went to Egypt and just took a, do- a job as an English teacher in order to improve my Arabic and yeah, generally, you know, make use of my degree. So Very that's nice. what I did straight after. And then after two years of doing that, I kind of came back to the UK and started my career in journalism properly. Wonderful. And then that's where you um, started to get on from journalism. Was it BBC and you were uh, presenting? Yeah. Well, not really, actually. In fact, my presenting, so I I worked in TV news. I I was an editor. So I was the person who um, told my journalists what stories to run, decided on the headlines, the running order, like the editor of a newspaper. But I was on the BBC News Channel, which is their 24-hour TV news channel uh, based in London. So I was doing that. And actually, my presenting came much later after I'd transformed Ah. into an adventurer. And I was asked to make a TV program about a 
adventure, a following the salt route from Tangier in Morocco to Timbuktu. And that's when I did my first job as a presenter. Oh, wow. Okay. That's fantastic. So you were able to really incorporate um, what you learned from the news channel into being presenter, do you think? They kind of went hand in hand. Absolutely. I think, I, I mean, I don't know if everybody who's listening feels this, but I think everything you learn through your life just, you know, it's just stored up and it all comes in useful sometimes. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Yes. I mean, I'd spent, I'd been a CEO for like year, for nine years. And, it, you know, I'd been away from TV for ages. But of course, you don't forget the grammar after you've been steeped in something or just how to do things a little bit. So mm-hmm. I think it definitely helps. And as I say, I think all these things we learn, all of us through our lives, do come back to help us later on. 100%. I completely agree with that. And I, I love that too, because even with different jobs that you take, that's how we grow. If we're, we're learning, we're growing. So... It definitely makes sense then. So then how did how did the shift happen? You're CEO with the company, and then all of a sudden, you decide to become an adventurer. I guess I should say, though, that you already were still traveling when you could while you were working, right? Like, you still went off on adventures in between. Yeah, and I'm sure, again, so many people, this, this is going to resonate with you guys. Every holiday I had from my work, and it's very generous in the UK, I got six weeks holiday a year, very nice. plus all the public holidays, rather very different from America, I think. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know about Canada, but very different, it's different. from that, yeah. over there. So, and I used to spend them, I used to like, for example, at Christmas, I would take a whole month, even though I was the chief executive of the company. Nice. And I wouldn't take a phone and I would just go and go hiking in Patagonia or ice climbing in Peru or something that involved me sleeping very uncomfortably in a tent and, you know, knocking my guts out physically uh, because I loved it. And yeah. I remember at the time, my secretary, my, my personal assistant, Jackie, was like, Alice, what are you doing? That you could spend like this time in a six star hotel in Thailand, <laughs> yeah. fully, you know, fully comp. <laughs> but what? why are you going to a tent in a tent? To the Atacama Desert. That's just crazy. But I, I loved it. So yes, I, I traveled and adventured all the way through when I could. Yeah. Um, in my holidays, like like most of us do. And then the big switch for me came in 2010 because what happened was I was chief executive of a media development agency, funding film, TV, um, games. And uh, we had a change of government, the Tory government, the conservative government came into power and they wanted to get rid of all organizations like mine, which were um, quasi-non-governmental. So I had to merge my company into a bigger company so that we could reduce the numbers of us in the country. I was effectively made redundant. I had to make a lot of my team redundant, which is very difficult, of course. But for me, I was just like, right, that's it. It was very painful. And again, you know, if you, especially at this time with COVID, you know, when you lose a job or you lose your company or something like that happens and it's not your own volition, you don't want to do it. It's quite difficult. I think it's something that when you go through it, you feel that pain. And especially if you're in charge of other people and you're responsible for their livelihood and basically they lose it. I mean, that is extremely difficult. I feel for all bosses at the moment, you know, laying staff off is absolutely grim and nobody ever wants to do it. So anyway, I was a bit Mm -hmm. scarred by all this experience. And I thought, right, I won't say the words I thought in my head. I thought, right, darn it. I'm going to cycle across Africa. You know, I'd seen, I'd, someone had sent me this link to the, to the longest bike race in the world, the mm-hmm. tour, tour of Africa, the Tour d'Afrique. Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, I'm going to sign up for it. It was November and it was leaving on January the 6th or 8th. Can't quite remember now. Yeah. And um, I signed up and off I went, completely untrained. I was going to ask. But nevertheless, <laughs> ready. Wow. Well, mentally, mentally ready because you knew you just needed to go. 
especially yeah, after exactly. all of that. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And that, I mean, again, it's really my point about life is, you know, I, I don't overthink things. Don't worry about things too much. Just get off and do things and, and it will all be fine. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a great reminder, especially for right now. Like you're saying with so much loss happening in different industries, even my own as well with, um, you know, a travel agency too, that it's going to be okay. And you kind of go through this grieving process where, you know, you're you're feeling the effects of everything and it takes a toll on you. And then sometimes you just need something that's such a big change, like go big or go home kind of thing. So it's pretty incredible with no training. So how did that uh, race go? <laughs> yeah. How did that go? Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, my training, my training, it was winter, obviously, in England, which is where my home was at the time. And I was, um, my training consisted of me watching my, the equivalent in Britain of Dancing with the Stars <laughs> on a turbo trainer in my front room, oh having snacks gosh. and chocolate. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm on a bike and I've got a cycle from Cairo to Cape Town, which wow. is 8,000 miles. So the first month was hell. The first month was actually hell. I have to be honest. Wow. It really was hell. Yeah. We were cycling about 84 miles a day. Mm-hmm. That was the average, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Yeah. And in Egypt, we had to cycle. You had a time constraint every day because it was a race. So in order to make the time and actually in order to make the distance, we cycled in a peloton. Okay, yeah. I'd never cycled in a peloton before. And it was going slightly faster than I could comfortably go. Okay. But... I had to catch on to it or else I couldn't make it on my own. And it really was, I mean, there were hours and hours of stress and discomfort in the saddle, you know, just thinking, oh, I can't do this. This is too fast for me. Mm-hmm. And thinking, well, you've got to hang on to that wheel because otherwise you'll just be left behind. You won't be able to do it on your own. You've got to keep on with the peloton and then just keeping going. And that's fine if it's like a minute or two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes but this was literally like you know seven hours of a day so that was very wearing and I really regretted not training but you know it I got over it by the time we got to Sudan I was trained you know by the time I cycled through Egypt my legs and my heart were in much better condition so it all worked out in the end but yet it was very uncomfortable don't do it folks do train don't do (laughs) not follow my example don't don't go in cold turkey here yeah and just go in well and in that heat I can imagine just the the heat alone for your body to kind of acclimatize to that plus the extra that you're putting on it mentally physically it's it's incredible but you finished it how long did it take to finish um it took now the race so it's it's like the Tour de France so you have a stage every day you have an etap every day okay and we rode for 100 days and we had 20 days rest Wow, that's incredible. Now, your your first book came out after this called Dodging Elephants. It did. What is one of the encounters with elephants that you had to dodge while you were on this race? I'm not going to tell you. Because we got to read the book. I really think you got to read the book for that one. Because there was only one encounter with an oh, elephant, okay. and it was a very big one. Wow. So I'm not going to do a spoiler on my no. own great story. Darn, I tried. <laughs> Available on Amazon Perfect. and it's very cheap. I can't remember how much I priced that, but it's low. Yeah, I think considering it was, that I risked yeah. my life for it, <laughs> except for the story. I'm gonna check it out because I'm very, very curious how that went. Because wow, what an incredible story! And you'd even mentioned your trip from Morocco. Was it Tangier to Timbuktu that you had done? Uh, yes. Yep, for your documentary. Yes, so that, mm-hmm. that was really exciting because I mean, obviously, if you're trying to make your way as an adventurer, I mean. 
you know, frankly, you can just go out and do adventurers. You can start calling yourself an adventurer and yeah. crack on, which is exactly what I did. And then I got the opportunity to do this TV program, which, of course, was really, really fun. And I'd never yeah. been a presenter before. So that was a bit of a difficult thing to get my head around at first. I'd always worked behind the camera and been the kind of boss. And suddenly I was being told what to do all the time. And I was in front of the camera. It was it was really odd at first, especially, you know, you have to do lots of things like for TV, like you have to walk up and down a street five times so that they've yes. got shots to kind of stick the story together. And all of that was was was. It's just interesting. Whenever you try something new, it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I had an amazing team to work with, Laura and Seamus and Alicia. And we we had and Charlie from Epic Travel here. We just had a really good time. And we had great stories. And I'm naturally curious. Some might say nosy. <laughs> so, you know, I am one of the things that my director, Alicia, she was like, oh, the good thing about you is that you're never afraid to dive in and talk to someone because I would just grab someone that I thought looked interesting and start chatting to them. Oh, nice. Um, and of course, because I had the languages, it makes life a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So we really enjoyed it. I mean, I hope we, I mean, I do think it was a lovely program and that's not being vain. It's because of Seamus, the cameraman, and Alicia, the producer director. I mean, really, it's, it's, you know, TV is not one person. You do see one person in front of the, the screen, but it's all the other people who make it happen. And I think that together we did make a really lovely film and highlight, you know, the troubles in Timbuktu and also just, mm-hmm. just show some of Morocco and Mali's fantastic history, which which is always a joy. Very, very neat. I'm going to have to check that one out. I'll have to see where I can get it here in Canada because... Timbuktu always seemed like such um, a made-up place, <laughs> really. I know. You know. From here to well, Timbuktu, people always say, right? So exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 exactly right. And actually, they did a survey once, and sixty-four percent of people in the UK didn't know where Timbuktu was. They thought it was <laughs> really? a made-up place. Yes, but yeah. it is in fact in Mali. Mali, yeah. In the desert of Mali. And a very and ancient city, like beautiful. Very, very ancient, and the home of the richest man ever, oh, according really? to Forbes, rich list. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Mansa Musa, the king, was the richest man ever. Wow. In fact, he was so rich that when he came up to do his pilgrimage, he was a Muslim, so he, he walked all the way from Mali, well, road actually, all the way from Mali up to Egypt and then across to Saudi Arabia to do the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which every Muslim mm-hmm must do as the duty if he, he or she can afford it. When he did that, when he passed through Egypt, he gave away so much gold that he actually crashed the economy and depressed the market for 10 years. Whoa. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. That is so interesting. So look him up. Man I, will. I will. That is so incredible. Morocco to Timbuktu. So how long, because your ending point was in Timbuktu. It was, yeah. Yeah. How long were you uh, there for? Did you stay for quite a while after? No. Timbuktu is extremely dangerous. It's actually the, um, Al-Qaeda invaded it. Uh, Mm. Timbuktu is a peaceful Muslim city and Al-Qaeda invaded from the desert, took it over, oppressed the people horribly. And then it was liberated by the French and the United Nations peacekeeping forces still there. And the people want that peacekeeping force there. It's actually the most dangerous peacekeeping force in the world. More people die there than anywhere else in the world, which is a horrible statistic. Mm -hmm. And there's still just regular raids in the desert. And if that UN 
forced forever to leave, the Al-Qaeda would immediately take the city again. And they oppressed people. They forced young girls into forced marriages, which is basically statutory rape. They didn't allow people to do any of their work. They wouldn't let people, who's famous for its music, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't let musicians play. They wouldn't even let the men congregate to rebuild the mosque which they do every year because they're made of clay. So every year they do repairs. They wouldn't even let them do that. And they met two Muslims. And very, very famously, they um, started burning the books from the great library of Timbuktu. And the books are, I mean, it is this incredible treasure trove, the library there. Mm -hmm. They are Islamic tech from thousands. I mean, they are absolutely wonderful. I've held some of them, hundreds and hundreds of years old, handwritten in in beautiful, you know, gold leaf. They're, They're exquisite. And these are Islamic texts. And yet these ignorant Al-Qaeda soldiers tried to burn them. And the librarians of Timbuktu risked their lives. And every night under cover of darkness, they smuggled books out of the libraries and into trucks and across to various hiding places in the rest of Mali. So there's, again, something to really look at. There's a a great book, I think it's called The Librarians of Timbuktu, where which tells the story of these amazing guys. And I met one of them and he was like a really small, really gentle man. And he basically every night under the noses of the guards had smuggled out books to save them. How wonderful is that? That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Wow. So to answer your question, I'm sorry, I didn't answer it. We we were only in Timbuktu for eight days because it's very, very dangerous. uh, And the threat there is of kidnap. So basically what happens is a raiding party will come in from the desert, they'll snatch you, mm-hmm. and then they'll sell you to the highest bidder. So, wow. you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, yeah. who will then use you as a hostage. And honestly, that is about, that is, I mean, nobody, you know, that's an awful thing. Nobody wants that to happen. I don't of want course. that to happen in my life. Oh. So we were very, very cautious. Yes, We had um, an army guard with us. We also had the local militia with us. Okay, yeah. So at all times, I think we had about eight armed men yeah. in a truck behind us. And we had a security specialist from the UK with us as well. Yeah. And we had lots of protocols if we were attacked or if a kidnap attempt happened. happened. Wow. Fortunately, it didn't. But Ooh. it's one of those things. Yeah. And, you know, that's the reality. it's all very well for mm-hmm. me going in for eight days. But the poor people who live in that beautiful city mm-hmm. who were just going about everyday business and suddenly, you know, this group, this armed group, terrorist group comes in and occupies their city and subjects them to all manner of horrible things. It just shows you, you know, we're so lucky if we live in a in a place that's secure. I mean, mm-hmm. we're so lucky and it's something that genuinely to be appreciated. It is. And it's it's something that I think we, we take many things uh, for granted in the busyness of life. So that is a huge reminder and it just really puts things into perspective that you know, some people have greater hardships than a lot of the things, you know, that we go through too. So what an incredible experience and story. That's just fantastic. I'm going to check out that book too. I'm going to have lots of reading to do after this. You you are. (laughs) I am. It's exciting. I I, I can plug my next book from Morocco to Timbuktu. Because basically after the TV show, I wrote a book about it. Yeah. Um, And for two reasons, I wanted to share more of the story because of course on TV, you cut loads out. Mm-hmm. So it's the full story, but it's also a little bit of um, a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to make a TV show. Oh, so it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't do any spoilers, but it, it does yeah. ha- hopefully give you an insight on teamwork and and what mm-hmm. it what goes into making a show. Exactly, very very neat. Now I know there's mention 
probably in the book too, so maybe this won't be a full spoiler, but you mentioned it on your website. That's why I bring it up. That you spent hours up to your thighs in pigeon poop. And I'm wondering <laughs> when that would happen and why it was up to your thighs. That's crazy. Well, yes, I'm a, I'm a great. I really like to get stuck into things. And, you know, any excuse to act like a child is absolutely fine. So I went to visit a tannery, and Morocco is very famous mm-hmm. for its leather, Moroccan yep. leather. And they still cure the leather using old fashioned methods. So every Friday, the pigeon owners from the city arrive in Marrakesh at the tanneries with kilos of pigeon poo, which they sell to the tanneries. And the tanners then put this pigeon poo mixed in with some other things into a big vat. When I say vat, I mean a vat that comes, that would come up to your chest uh-huh. and take, 10 people could stand in the vat. And then the tanners, when, when they're curing the leather, the leather goes in that and they, 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 they stomp on the leather and they pull the hair off. So the pigeon poo is one of the stages in uh, preserving leather. Mm. And I, when I saw that there was a vat full of pigeon poo ahead of me, I leapt into it excitedly <laughs> to join the tanners in their task. To get into it. But my, <laughs> That's funny. My only problem was that... Um, Oh, no, I won't just spoiler on that either. That's in Morocco to Timbuktu. All I can say is never leap into a vat of pigeon poo (laughs) wearing waders unless you're sure that your waders are taller than the depth of the pigeon poo. You got very excited. That's all I'll say. Uh I can see you got excited. Well, I've been to the tanneries in uh, Marrakesh, and I did not have the urge to jump into any (laughs) vats of pigeon poop. But did you I, like the smell? Oh, the smell! Oh, and what do they? They give us um, mint leaves to to smell that to mask the <laughs> smell. But it really—I mean, it, you know—mint smells good. But you, oh wow, it's just—it's something else. You really have to see it and experience in order <laughs> experience it in order just to see what it's all about. But it's a very interesting process how they do that over there. Very interesting. Now you, I mean, with these races and adventures you've been on. It sounds like you have been very active, even, you know, while you've been working as well. Is there something you would say um, that drives you to do these races? Like, what what is it, what's your motivation behind wanting to do, you know, the Everest Trail race you you had mentioned? Or is it always different depending on what's going on in your life? Um, I think the, the overall urge is to experience new things and to push myself and to challenge myself. That's the overarching urge. And then it will, you know, it's a matter of what's available, where I fancy going. Will I be able to sell any articles about it? Really, there's a, there's a number of factors in it, but I think the overwhelming urge is is just to experience new things. And I would just like to tell everyone, I'm not at all sporty. I really am not. I mean, I've done big physical challenges, but really they are a means to adventure. Not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not an elite runner or an elite cyclist. <laughs> in fact, I came last in the Everest trail race yeah. um, of those who finished. Not everybody finished, but I, I was the last one, but, and in Tour de Freak, I came third, which is much better. Wow. Fantastic. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I'm by no means a good sports person at mm-hmm. all, but it's, it's more a case of having a go. And I do like being outdoors and I do like endurance. I do like getting places under my own steam, you know, actually yeah. on my own legs. So that's that spur really. And again, my message to anyone out there is never think you're too, you know, too old, too fat, too too weak, too 
whatever and never think you're not enough, not strong enough, not fit enough, not fast enough. Because if I can do it, I can guarantee you that you can do it. So just give it a go. That would honestly be my advice. Just give it a go. Give it a go because why not? And I guess that's a lot of the mental aspect for preparing for something uh, endurance-wise that's that long. Preparing mentally is just as important as preparing physically for it and reminding yourself you can do it. It's just a matter of overcoming those thoughts that do creep up. Definitely. That's incredible. Definitely. Definitely more of a mental challenge, I think. Absolutely. In March of uh, last year, I guess it was, March 2019, you became the first woman to walk the Draw River in Morocco. That, I did. That trek is 15, how long is that? 1,500 kilometers across yeah, desert mountains? Yeah, Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. How, how did you uh, get involved or even do this trip? Well, I just wanted to, uh, because I'd been living in Morocco at that time for five or six, five years. I wanted to do something local, something big and something that was understandable. And a river is always a good one. No woman, had, no, it has not been recorded that any woman had walked this river before. So I thought, well, I'll do that. It's, it's a good distance. It goes through lots of different terrain and it's in Morocco. I'll get to explore more of this country that I really love. And that, that's why I chose the river. I started off and I had my expedition organizer as a chap called Jean-Pierre Dachary. And he has a company called Desert Montagne Morocco, and he organized my expedition. So we did that first stage with five camels and three Amazir guys. Amazir is the correct word for Berber. Um, three Amazir men, Brahim, Brahim, and Adzi. And we walked, took us just shy of three months, this 1500 kilometers across the river. And it was just the most amazing experience. It was just so joyful and so much fun and I saw and learned and discovered so much. It was so exciting. And at the same time, I had this amazing rhythm. We had the camels and I just absolutely adored it. I mean, it it was just such a journey of kind of light and happiness. And even the hard bits when I look, I mean, I know I'm looking back on it. And at the time they were quite hard, but it really was one of those really joyful things. And when I finished it, Jean-Pierre was like, Elise, he's French. <laughs> like, why don't you just do the rest of Morocco? We can join it up. And then you'll have worked from north to south. So that's what I did. And in fact, I just finished my last stage two weeks ago. Uh, no, a month ago. Incredible. That's across uh, the Sahara Desert. I did the Sahara Desert between November and February, uh, ending in February well. 2020. Went into lockdown almost straight after, um, came out of lockdown, and then we managed to finish the third stage. We started at the end of August and finished um, in, what are we now, finished in October. So, you know, I managed to even explore during lockdown, Mm -hmm. during this crisis, not lockdown, because it was post that. So that was something you could never preview happening ever, Mm -hmm. you know, but actually it added another whole layer to this to the adventure, having it happen in COVID. Of yeah. course, we took all reasonable precautions, yes. by the way. We weren't, you Definitely. know, wandering around spreading the disease willy-nilly. But it, but it was, it wasn't, in, I felt like this last stage particularly, I mean, it was 1,400 kilometers across the Atlas Mountains from the Mediterranean to the, to where we started in Warsazat, the gateway to the desert. And it was so extraordinary doing it, you know, mm-hmm. to compare. as the whole world is still under the vice of this, this pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Would would you say there was any, in comparing when you did, you know, the first part, 
with no COVID versus now doing the last part with, any major challenges that you would say kind of stick out when comparing the two? Do you mean were there any challenges because of COVID? Yeah, that that anything was a little bit different or, I mean, everything's different, of course, right now. But yeah, maybe something that was a bit more challenging because of COVID. Well, I think the first thing that was incredibly challenging was the psychology of it. I mean, normally before a huge expedition, you know, we're looking at walking every day for two and a half months over the mountains. And it's really, I love these things, but they're also quite difficult, you know, to be honest, they are tough. So usually before an expedition, I make sure I'm really rested, that psychologically I'm like really relaxed and stable, that my kind of emotional bank is full, that I'm really ready to do what what is effectively, you effectively take a huge deep breath at the beginning of any expedition and you hold it until the last day when you've got to your destination safely and then you let it go because you have to focus. But this this one, we didn't even know if we'd start. You know, we got to our first bivouac. We were told you we weren't allowed to start. All through, we'd get messages saying, oh, this governor doesn't want you. Oh, this, you know, we're not sure if you can go here. So all the way through, we worried about being pulled back, you know, would there be a full lockdown again of Morocco, in which case we'd have to stop. So that stress and tension was there all the time. That was very noticeable, not only for me, also for the men, you know, for all of us. And because it's a lot of pivot, it's a lot of change and traveling now is a very different, it's, it is very much more mental nowadays if you are traveling, just because there's so many things that can change. And I think a lot of people have to be prepared for that moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. Very much you, so. You make a really good point. And then, of course, we had to be very, I mean, in fairness, we were walking through the wilderness. We did meet people and we did not meet one single person who had any connection with COVID whatsoever. Yeah. No one in yeah. any of the regions we were in had heard of anyone in his family or friends who had COVID to the extent that really people were almost beginning to feel it wasn't true yeah. or that it was just a disease of the city yeah. because where we were, it's very, you know, it's in the wild places, it's in the wilderness, but we did pass through villages. Um, I'd had a test before we started. Where yeah. I live, there's not been one single case of COVID for a 20 mile radius. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. you know, in, in as much as anyone can say they're pretty very sure, so. we, we were absolutely sure we were safe. And of course, Good. we formed our own little bubble with me and the three men because we were our own little oh, exactly. bubble. And we were also outdoors yeah. all the time because we were intense. we felt very confident and what we did when we met people was we just took our cue for them so if they were wearing masks we had our masks with us at all times we put them on if they you know we always approached with caution not because of us really but because of them to respect their wishes but really the people we met they wanted to greet us they wanted to shake hands we were in the wildest regions so no we did we didn't you know bump some people wanted to bump elbows and then we would we we just took our cue from the communities we were in perfect and we arrived safely and none of us have covid what would you say your your biggest highlights would be then off of this most recent um or i guess all of them collectively really track that you went on oh i can't i can't do a highlight for all of i mean you're talking about seven and a half months of (sighs) i know you know highlights every day but i can give you a highlight for the last one the last one the highlight was definitely dinosaur footprints we found dinosaur footprints that is that's incredible really incredible Wow. Yeah. And you found them, so, Did were they well known in like the, the town or, or village you were in or is it just you stumbled upon them? No, we did. Well, we did two things. We, we did something. Initially, I, mean, I said that I would love to find some dinosaur footprints. So we, we could, for nine weeks, we were nine weeks into kind of a 10 and a half week expedition and we hadn't found any. And it was really, you know, it's like, I want to find some. 
because we're there are regions in Morocco which are very well known for their fossils. Yeah. So I was like, I want to find some. And then Jean Pierre back back at base found a mention on the internet of a place near where we were where a guy called Hassan Yamami had found some dinosaur footprints. So there was a GPS point. So Jean-Pierre went in and we found them. We found these dinosaur footprints and we, you know, I grabbed, we, we had climbing harnesses and we scaled this very high rock face, which freaked me out no end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I measured them, put my hand in them, <sighs> photographed them. But then my blood was up and I wanted to find my own. So actually about four, four days later, we found our own set in a completely new site. Because now we knew what we were looking for. Yeah. You know, now we've seen them in real life. So we, we logged another new site. We've got all the coordinates and everything for that. And I've sent those to the Natural History Museum in England, yeah. in London. And we also, I then also wanted to go back to Agurska, the area that we'd seen the first ones in, and do some more exploring and find my own in that region. Because I knew that, you know, this guy had found three sets. And I thought, I bet I can find more. So we went back, two of us went back, and actually we found another really good couple of sites. Oh. So it was a really exciting time. That is. That's so exciting. I Like how many people can say they've found and discovered dinosaur footprints? That's, I know. Oh, that's incredible. See, that's the Indiana Jones for girls right there happening. That's definitely Thank it. you very much. Yeah. I appreciate that. Ah, it's fantastic <laughs> title. And you do live up to it so well. Definitely. Oh, do. I don't know about that. I uh, mean, it does make me laugh. It's a bit of a joke, really. Um, but you know, heck. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to think of something for a headline, don't you? Exactly. Run with it. Oh man. Well, I mean, and one thing too, I, I have been wondering because you live. Um, I mean, you live in the Atlas Mountains. You've been there for many years. Is there anything you've learned while living in Morocco that's been maybe somewhat surprising? Um, I think what I've really learned here is uh, to be patient. And patience was probably something that I didn't respect as a good quality because, you know, I am by nature quite an impatient person. I want to get things done. I want to, you know, do it now, get things finished. But actually, there are some very negative. Being hasty can cause you lots of trouble and problems. And actually, if you're patient, if you take the time to listen to other people, to really investigate what's going on and just to sit with things for a little bit, I have found that that has really, really helped me in my life. And it's not something I would expect because, as I say, in a way, if somebody, you know, listed your somebody's qualities and said, oh, they're very patient, I'd be like, oh, God, that just means boring. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would. I, yeah, yeah, but I can see that. Now, now I would say, aha, okay, interesting, because I've definitely benefited from just taking a breath and not wanting to control everything as well. Just being patient, seeing how things work out a little bit, not trying always to force my will or my way onto things. So that's, I think, the surprising thing personally that I've learned living in this culture. I think that's fantastic. And it it's such a nice reminder, especially from people, uh, you know, like me and you're from a city and it's always hustle, bustle, go, go, go. And even this year has forced a lot of us to be more patient, more present and uh, exactly. really be in the moment more, right? And it's, it's a hard yeah. one. It's very hard for many. And I even struggle with it. But once you kind of start doing it, you realize it's it's not like a sign of weakness. It's it's actually very no. therapeutic and nice just to, yeah, listen. I like that. I really do. With, um, I, I have to ask, because when we were in Morocco, I, I was actually engaged. Uh, my husband proposed in Morocco up in Tangier on the beaches oh, at sunset. Yes, that was in uh, 2018. We were there, February 2018. And it was fantastic. Morocco really does have a place in our heart. We um, 
we took the ferry over from Gibraltar and then went around and, and saw quite Lovely. a few different beautiful places. But my favorite thing was the tangines. And I know that that, is, that, that food is a staple <laughs> all throughout Morocco, but the flavors in this clay pot, as they have it with the lid, are absolutely incredible. And I'm curious, what is your favorite food over there? My favorite food is goat intestine sausages. Oh, well, I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> so really, the reason for that is that you only... there. So I've only eaten them when we've been on expedition and as a celebration, like about once every expedition, I'll buy a goat. Yeah. Um, because we always, we mainly eat vegetables and at some point the men get really hungry for meat. So I'm like, right, we'll get a goat. <laughs> and Addy, one of my companions, he's the son of a nomad. He's only 24. And the minute he gets to cook a goat, he is a happy, happy, happy man. So the, the good thing, I mean, I am a meat eater, but I hate killing animals. So I'm a, yeah. I, I'm a hypocrite. But the great thing I think about eating animals close to their source, so you'd buy the goat from a nomad. It would be killed cruelty-free. I mean, cruelty-free. You can't kill anything cruelty-free, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm, Very quickly, close to the place where it, well, in the place that it lives, so there's no transport involved. And then basically Mm -hmm. you eat every single part of that goat, everything. Mm -hmm. And so the bit that Addy really is his kind of speciality. And the first time I had to eat it, I was almost sick. But now I've come to kind of just accept that this is part of the, the festivities. Mm-hmm. So he makes these sausages, which is basically, wait for it, this is so grim. So you take the goat trichia, you know, the voice yeah. box, yeah. cut it up. You, you, you wrap it in belly fat. Oh, wow. And then you tie the whole thing up with cleaned out long intestines. Wow. Uh, which is like string. Yeah. And then you cook it over the charcoal, the charcoal fire, yeah. and or the wood fire, which you burn down to embers. And then um, you have to eat this thing. It's called kordas in Moroccan. Wow. And it's very, very traditional. And the nomads love it. It's like they're, they're, they're kind of best dish. They absolutely yeah. love it. So there's no way when Adi handed me this thing, which just looked, looked like a it, frankly, it looked like a severed penis. I am not joking. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And he was like, oh, they call me Zahra. Zahra, you're going to love this. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. So I bit into it. And the trachea, so it's, it's completely rubbery and yeah. fat. Wow. And the trachea is crunchy. Oh, my God. Wow. And, it's, like, and it's delicious. <laughs> it's the deliciousness was more in the pleasure that Addy had in, in cooking yeah. it and in offering it to me and the relish with which my companions, Addy and Brahim, just wolfed down these things. <laughs> and of course, you know, I ate one whole one. And then I was like, oh my God. And they were like, Addy was like, oh, have another one. We've got plenty. And I was like, no, 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 guys, you eat up. I'm full. I'm really full. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm good. Thank you. Oh, that is amazing. What an experience it is. And there are many places I've learned because I remember we were in um, Jamaica in the Caribbean and I saw, I was like, oh, look, they've got their pet goat outside. And uh, the driver that we were with was a local guy and he's like, what? Pet? No, we're eating that for Christmas. Like this is, this is what we eat for the holidays. Like, you know, you grow the goat yeah. for many years. Yeah. It's like for a festive celebration. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. But, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's I so mean, good. Yeah. It is. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's like, as I say, you know, I do love to eat meat, but it is, it's always the thought when you have to kill the animal. Yeah. But I think it is good then to eat every single part of it. We, I mean, we eat everything, the head, everything. In yeah. fact, 
only last week I had my, one of my friends made me a tagine, a mm. speciality here of a Jewish um, dish, actually. The Jewish community used to make for the Sabbath. Uh, and it's called Tchina in Zarija. And it's basically jellied cow's feet. Oh, wow. Yeah. So once again, I had to just... Gotta try like, it. Oh. <laughs> well, no, if somebody makes you like a special celebration yes. dish, you can't sit there and go, jellied calf's feet. Mm-hmm. No, please. <laughs> so you just grin. Yep. And off you go. <laughs> and off you go. Just like your advice before. If yes. you're thinking of doing something, off you go. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you can do. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I really do. Well, where can people find you? Social media, website? I'm so easy to find. So my website is alicemorrison.co.uk. And if you can't remember, just Google Alice Morocco and you will find me. And all my links to all my social media. I've got a podcast, Alice in Wonderland. I have Alice Out There One on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, My YouTube channel is Alice Morrison. And I think that's it. And all my books are on Amazon. Perfect. There you are. I love it. I'll be checking them out. It's so exciting. And I just want to thank you again for sharing your incredible journey and stories with us. It's so inspiring. Oh, Oh, it's, it, it really is. And it just brings the joy of travel back. And it's something that I know so many of us really do love and miss. So I appreciate you chatting with us today. Oh, you're welcome. And I mean, you know, great that you're doing this podcast and just keeping the travel vibe alive. That's we need we need more of them. We do, exactly. And you know, funnily enough, on my drive into the studio today, I, I went past an elementary school and there's a big marquee sign um, with those big letters on it. And it had a quote and it was, life is a journey and how you choose to live is your adventure. And I thought that was oh. so fitting and meant to be yeah. for today's chat because it is true. How we choose to live really is our adventure. And there's so many different ways we can do it. And I mean, not only are your stories inspiring, but the way that you've truly immersed yourself into a different culture while learning so much and tasting your way through the country <laughs> is something really to admire. And I mean, not only that, it's it's also your determination and your positive outlook when it comes to these challenges or really these goals that you're setting for yourself. And it's a great reminder to all of us as humans, that we are capable of more than we think. And sometimes we just need to be pushed way outside our comfort zone in order to see what we can accomplish. So it is pretty incredible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know that every single person who's listening can, you know, you do have that power within yourself. And if you want to use it, just go for it. Use it in your everyday life. You know, just have a little adventure in your lunch hour. Exactly. I, I think many adventures are the way forward. Absolutely. I love it. Well, thank you so much again. Really appreciate your chat. If you like this episode, please subscribe, download a few more and leave a review. I really would love to hear from you, what you enjoyed and what your key takeaways were. And of course, please let me know if there's any aspect of the travel industry you want me to talk about next. You can also search for the hashtag She Dares to Travel podcast on Instagram and comment on the episode's post with your questions. I'd love to answer them all for you guys. I hope you enjoy your day. Stay so well. And until next time, fly straight.